Welcome to the Beautiful and True Project podcast. This is a place where we talk about beauty and truth, the things that are most important to us, the things that ground us, and the things that uplift us. My guests are not celebrities. They are, in many ways, leading kind of ordinary lives, but they pay extraordinary attention to the world around them, and that makes the difference. Hi, friends. So I had a guest all lined up for today, and because of many things, because I'm a one-woman podcasting shop, because I also work full-time and I'm teaching a class and I'm putting together a video for the opera company that I'm on the board of, and because every now and then, living through the times that we're living through just to get you, I dropped the ball a little bit, not gonna lie. I imagine that I'm not the only one who has found themselves needing a couple of days to sit and read and eat and sleep and not get all their ducks in a row. I imagine I'm not the only one. But what that means is I don't have a guest for this week. Now, I will have one next week and for several weeks going forward. So I think we'll be back on the right track. But this gives me the opportunity to share a few things with you that I might not get to otherwise. As I was scrolling through social media this last week, I came across this wonderful, wonderful tweet thread from a woman named Dr. Aisha Ahmad. She's a professor of international security at the University of Toronto, and she has studied economies of civil war zones for a very long time. And she's been in places like Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iraq. She's been in lots of different places where things are falling apart. So she is familiar, very familiar with the emotional processes of chaos. I want to read you this tweet thread that she wrote because it came to me exactly when I needed to hear it. And maybe it will be what you need to hear as well. And it also will tell you a little bit about, well, after I'm done, I'll talk to you a little bit about why it inspired me to do this particular episode in this way. So this is Dr. Aisha Ahmad. She's at Prof Aisha Ahmad on Twitter. And this is what she says. The sixth month mark in any sustained crisis is always difficult. We have all adjusted to this, quote, new normal, but might now feel like we're running out of steam. Yet at best, we are only a third of the way through this marathon. How can we keep going? First, in my experience, this is a very normal time to struggle or slump. I always hit a wall six months into a tough assignment in a disaster zone. The desire to get away or make it stop is intense. I've done this many times, and at six months, it's like clockwork. This time, our crisis is global, and there is nowhere to run. That's okay. 
I've had to power through that six-month hump before, and there is life on the other side. Right now, it feels like we're looking ahead at a long, dark, wintry tunnel, but it's not going to be like that. Rather, this is our next major adaptation phase. We've already relearned how to do groceries, host meetings, and even teach classes, and we have found new ways to be happy and have fun. But as the days get shorter and colder, we need to be ready to innovate again. This is my first pandemic, but not my first six-month wall. So what can I share to help you? First, the wall is real and normal. And frankly, it's not productive to try to ram your head through it. It will break naturally in about four to six weeks if you ride it out. Of course, there are things we have to do. Work, teach, cook, exercise. But just don't expect to be sparklingly happy or wildly creative in the middle of your wall. Right now, if you can meet your obligations and be kind to your loved ones, you get an A+. Also, don't be afraid that your happiness and creativity are gone for the rest of this marathon. Not true. I assure you that it will soon break and you will hit a new stride. But today, roll with it. Clear away less challenging projects. Read a novel. Download that meditation app. Frankly, even though we cannot physically leave this disaster zone, try to give yourself a mental or figurative shore leave. Short mental escapes can offer respite and distance from the everyday struggle. Take more mental leave until you clear the wall. In my experience, this six-month wall both arrives and dissipates like clockwork, so I don't fight it anymore. I don't beat myself up over it. I just know that it will happen and trust that the dip will pass. In the meantime, I try to support my mental and emotional health. Take heart. We have navigated a harrowing global disaster for six months with resourcefulness and courage. We have already found new ways to live, love, and be happy under these rough conditions. A miracle and a marvel. This is hard proof that we have what it takes to keep going. So, dear friends, do not despair of the six-month wall. It's not permanent, nor will it define you in this period of adversity. Trust that the magic that helped you through the first phase is still there. Take a breath and a pause. You'll be on the other side in no time. Ooh. Friends, I don't know about you, but I needed to hear that last week. Oh, I needed to hear it. I am feeling that wall. I know a lot of the people that I know and care about are also experiencing it. And it was just, it was like balm to my soul. And I wanted to share that with you in case you hadn't seen it. I hope you have. And if you haven't, I hope that it gave you as much and relief and feelings of being seen and understood that it gave me. So... How does, what does this have to do with this episode? So I was thinking, what do I want to talk about this episode? I just talked to you last week and I gave you uh, kind of the things I do to help me keep going. And like I've always said, beautiful and true will not save you from every little down swoop. You know, it doesn't keep you happy and amazing and content all the time. It just makes things easier and makes the dip shorter, in my experience, and less deep. 
so with all this in mind and thinking about how I wanted to share Dr. Ahmad's words with you, I thought, what are some other things that I might like to share with you? What are, what are things that are beautiful and true to me that might touch you in some way this week? So I have a couple of things I'm going to share. The first is a song. It's called Bright Morning Stars. And there's an amazing, an amazing version of it by the Waylon Jennings. Oh, so good. Uh, go look it up. It's just absolutely chilling. I'm going to play you a version. It's a cover that um, a couple friends and I did. And it is a cover of the Waylon Jennings version but it has a few changes that were made by Shannon Hunter Yeager, who is the soprano that you'll hear sitting on top in the melody. Our third singer is Sarah Beth Tanner. And then there's me. I, if I'm remembering this right, and it's been a few years since we recorded this, I'm, I have the low part. This recording is taken from, we were prepping for a, a live version, and this is a recording of that rehearsal. Shannon and Sarah Beth are just extraordinary singers. Uh, they have huge ranges as vocalists, but they really shine in this kind of folk setting. So any imperfections you hear are entirely from me. I am not the world's greatest singer, and it was such a privilege to be able to sing with these two. The reason I'm sharing this song is because... It is so like crystalline pure and it is grief and beauty all mixed into one and it is almost as simple as you can as you can make it. It just for me it speaks directly to my soul. It's not certain where the song originated. It's believed that it's a an old Appalachian folk tune which sounds right because as you listen to it, it feels like a cold, cold, crisp mountain morning with the mist still on, on the trees and everything quiet and still. And it's just you and the stars and a sun that isn't even thinking about rising yet. Mm. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do.
love that piece so much. One of the things that I've, I'm sure I've talked about it in past episodes, but one of the things that is absolutely beautiful and true to me is the commingling of joy and grief or beauty and grief. And it can be great grief with a little hint of joy, or it can be great joy with a little hint of sadness. But it's, it, there's something in that that just absolutely speaks to me. I may have told this story before, and if I have, forgive me, but I'm reminded very powerfully of when my grandmother died. We were the whole family was with her in the hospital when she passed and eventually my mom this was my mom's mom she sent my brother and I home so that she and my dad could take care of you know the all the things that have to be taken care of when someone when someone dies and once that was done they went to the hospital elevator and got in you know with eyes red from crying and the with that exhaustion I don't know if you've lost anyone close to you like really close like a parent or a a sibling or a best friend beloved aunt grandparent if you do I'm sure you're aware of the exhaustion that sets in the second that you don't have anything left to do so they're in this elevator feeling that and you know the elevator falls to the next floor and goes ding and the doors open and in comes this young couple with a brand new baby you know exhaustion of a different kind in their faces but also a glow and i remember my mom telling me that there was such comfort in that because here she was grieving the loss of her mother and seeing that Life goes on in this precious little baby. So joy and grief commingled. As I was thinking about other things I wanted to share with you, I I kept coming back to, you know, some poetry that I love and that that really speaks to me. Um, But it's kind of particular to me, and maybe I'll share that sometime. But I I was looking for something that was maybe a little more, I don't know, universal maybe maybe that's the word and then I had this you know was listening to this song that that Sarah Beth and Shannon and I sang and thinking about joy and grief and suddenly it came to me years and years ago in high school I did you know competitive speaking it's called it was called forensics then Um, and one of the events that you could do was dramatic interpretation. That's usually where you do a bunch of characters and you get very loud and scream a lot. And that wasn't really for me. And I found this monologue by Jane Martin in her play called Talking With. This is from 1982. And I, it's just gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. I never make it through without crying. So if you are somebody who finds themselves tearing up fairly easily, you might want to pause, 
grab a handkerchief or a Kleenex. Yeah, this one's this one's good, and I really wanted to share it with you because it 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 is beautiful and true to me in the kind of the biggest, grandest way possible, and also in the simplest way. So I'm going to read this monologue. And I'm going to do some of the stage directions as well. There aren't many, just a few. And I've got a little sound effect that I'm going to do. <laughs> Hopefully it'll work. Again, this is Clear Glass Marbles from the play Talking With by Jane Martin. A young woman is standing next to an end table with a lamp on it, holding a crystal bowl filled with 90 clear glass marbles. The day my mother found out she was dying, she asked me to go out and buy her these clear glass marbles. Dad and I hadn't even known she was ill, which was nothing new. Whenever you asked my mother if she was ill, she would throw things at you. Sesame buns, the editorial page, a handful of hair ribbons. Do not, she would say, suggest things to suggestible people. Anyway, I brought the marbles, and she counted 90 of them out and put them in this old cut glass bowl, which was the sum total of Great Aunt Helena's estate. Hmm. Apparently the doctors had given her three months, and she set great store by doctors. She said she always believed them because they were the nearest thing to the Old Testament we had. I wouldn't give you two bits for these young smiley guys, she'd say. I go for a good, stern-furrowed physician. She wouldn't even have her teeth cleaned by a dentist under 50. So she counted out 90 clear glass marbles and set them in the bowl on her bedside table. Then she went out and spent $1,200 on nightgowns. She said, in my family, you are only dying when you take to your bed, and that, my darlings, is where I am going. And she did. Uh, we hashed it around. Dad said she couldn't possibly be dying. But the doctors convinced him. I told her it seemed a little medieval to lie and stayed up there. But she said she didn't want to be distracted from what she loved. Us and what she wanted to mull. And she said there was nothing outside except drugstores and supermarkets and dry cleaners and that given her situation, they were beneath her dignity. I asked her what she intended to do up there and she said, study French, visit with us, generally mull, and maybe call a few pals. <laughs> study French. She said she had made a pledge to herself years ago that she would die bilingual. Dad and I cried a lot, but she didn't. He was fun to cry with. From then on, the doctors had to come to see her because as she put it, she came in with a house call and she was going out with a house call. And all day, every day, she would hold one of these marbles in her hand. Why? 
She said it made the day longer. Mother had her own bedroom. That was the way it always was, for as long as I can remember. She called my father the thrasher. Dad could really get into a nightmare. Apparently, early on in the marriage, he had flipped over and broken her nose, and that was it. Separate beds. Her room was very spare, really. Wooden floors, an old steel and brass bed, oak dresser, bedside table, and don't ask me why, a hat rack. No pictures on the walls. She never understood how people could look at the same darn thing day after day. She said it was bound to deflate the imagination. We'd sit with her after dinner and talk about issues. She told us she was too far gone for gossip or what we ate for lunch. Then we'd all turn in, and in a little while, just before I'd drift off, I'd hear this. Happened every night. After the third or fourth day, I saw one on the floor and started to pick it up, but she said, leave it. She said it very sharply. I asked, how come? She said she was learning to let go of them. She passed the time. There were things she wanted. She made out a list of children's books from her own childhood, and we got as many of them as we could find from the library. She said they were still the only good books she'd ever read. She wrote notes to, oh, I don't know, maybe 60 or 70 people, and they told us later on they were sort of little formal goodbyes, each of them recalling some incident or shared something not very significant. But the odd thing was that in each one, she included a recipe. A recipe in every one of them. We got out the big cookie tin full of snapshots that, that somehow never became a scrapbook. Hmm. She liked that. She showed my father how to do the medical insurance and how she handled the accounts. We went through her jewelry. She wrote down the names of the roofers and plumbers and air conditioning people. She called it wrapping it up. Well, this is good, she'd say. I'm wrapping it up. She had the television moved up in her room, and she called me aside to say that it was entirely possible that she might reach a stage where she really wouldn't know what she was watching, but that I must promise her that I'd keep it on PBS. <laughs> Later on when it started getting hard. She told Dad and me that she would like to spend more time alone. I'm afraid, she said, that I'm going to have to do this more or less by myself. She said that she was glad, and she hoped we would be, that this was arranged so that you got less and less attached to the people you loved at the end. <laughs> uh, 
uh, the next period isn't worth going into. It was just hard. Do you know that from the very beginning, she never admitted to any pain? Never. She called it the chills. <laughs> the last thing she asked for was a picture we had in the front entrance hall of a Labrador retriever she and Dad had owned when they were first married. He was, she said, a perfectly dreadful dog. When you are young, she said, you believe in perfectly dreadful dogs. I was in bed two weeks ago, Wednesday, toward dawn, and then this. Dad and I ran in there. The bedside table was turned over, and she was gone. Dead. When the emergency medical people got there, they found this. She opens her hand to disclose one more marble. The rest spilled when the table fell, but this one was still in her hand. I keep it. I keep it in my hand all day. It makes the day longer. Ooh. Mm, told you, couldn't make it through it without crying. Oh, I just, I love that piece so much. Because there is such humor in it, and such joy, and such sorrow. And that feels very true to me, and very beautiful. I have one more thing to share with you, which has nothing to do with grief. And I don't know if it has to do with joy. But it is beautiful and true to me, and... It has to do with family and home. And it is the sound. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to cut this in. What you're about to hear is just a few seconds of someone chopping vegetables. <laughs> it has to do with like I said, food, warmth, home, all the good things. And it also reminds me a little bit of those uh I believe they're called ASMR videos that are supposed to be very soothing. I don't know if you'll find this soothing, but I think it's a fun, a fun way to end this episode. So here we are, a few seconds of chopping vegetables.
delicious. And that, my friends, is this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed putting it together for you. As I say every week, I so appreciate you listening. Thank you so much. It means the world to me. And if you do like this, find us on iTunes and subscribe. Look for The Beautiful and True Project. I'm also working on getting us on Spotify. So hopefully in a a couple weeks, you'll be able to also go to Spotify and listen through that app. As always, I do hope that what you are hearing inspires you to look for the beautiful and true in your own life. I'll talk to you next Sunday with a brand new guest. Have a great week.